Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. In Daniel Weintraub's new book, Party of One, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of the Independent Voter, the Sacramento Bee columnist takes a close look at Arnold Schwarzenegger as a political phenomenon. Arriving from Austria, already a champion bodybuilder, the young immigrant had become the definition of a self-made man, ultimately conquering Hollywood. After meeting Maria Shriver and her parents, the influential philanthropists Sargent and Eunice Kennedy Shriver, Schwarzenegger learned firsthand the needs of the less fortunate. Weintraub explores Schwarzenegger's striking personal history to understand the California governor's fascinating, if sometimes problematic, legacy. Recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Daniel Weintraub. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's great to be at Zocalo. This is a fantastic uh, space and uh, wonderful program. And I'm happy to be back in uh, Los Angeles. I always love coming down here now. As uh, Gregory said, I'm a native of San Diego. And uh, growing up in the 1960s and 1970s in San Diego, Los Angeles was a place to be feared, not only uh, because their sports teams routinely smashed whatever uh, teams the uh, people of San Diego were putting forward, but just the whole sense of this big, sprawling uh, metropolis but now I think L.A. has changed, and I've certainly changed, and now I see it as just this fantastic melting pot, an incredible place of dynamism that is a symbol of a lot of things that are, are great about California. And uh, I do love California. As a native of this state, I think it's the most uh, dynamic and interesting place in the, in the country, if not in the world, and to be able to write about it, public policy and politics unfolding here and uh, actually get paid to inflict my opinions on what I see on potentially hundreds of thousands of people every week is quite a thrill. So I think that I have what's probably the best job in, in California journalism, having that, that vantage point, and uh, I just love it. It's certainly uh, become a lot more interesting the last few years since the arrival of Mr. Schwarzenegger in the Capitol. A few weeks after he took office, I got a call from a radio reporter out of London with the uh, BBC, and uh, she wanted my help with a story she was trying to track down. I said, well, what, what is it? She said, I understand that your governor is proposing to blow a hole in the Capitol Dome to allow his cigar smoke to more easily escape from the Capitol. And I said, well, you're sort of half right. He does enjoy smoking a, a good stogie now and again, but fortunately for him and for us, there's already an open-air courtyard in his office suite, so there's no need for any alterations to the capital infrastructure. And she thanked me for uh, setting her straight, although it sort of sounded like she was kind of disappointed that I had done so. And I hung up the phone, and, and I waited a minute. And I called the governor's press office to check just to make sure <laughs> that nothing was up. And uh, fortunately, uh, I had the story right. So it has been an interesting time because you never know exactly what you're going to see next from this governor. It's been a time of many surprises, not only uh, for me, but I think for, for the people and the voters of, of California. The first surprise for me with Schwarzenegger was how grounded he was. The first time I sat down with him privately at a, at a lunch a few months after he took office, I had observed him on the campaign trail and in his first days as governor, and uh, knowing his background and what he had done in his life, I sort of expected him to be something of a prima donna, kind of full of himself. He clearly has a very outsized ego. But instead, I found him to be strangely kind of normal, <laughs> which is probably says something about him. It also says something about the other politicians who have preceded him in that job and in Sacramento. I mean... Typically, someone who becomes governor of California has lived their entire life, adult life, in a partisan political cauldron, and really politics is just about all they think about. But Schwarzenegger has lots of interests outside of politics, and he enjoys talking about them, pursuing them. I mean, we talked about our 
families. Just the fact that he has children made him somewhat unique as a recent governor of California. He talked about sports, skiing, all kinds of things, which we had mutual interests. And that was sort of a first for me with a governor, actually talking about something other than politics. And then when we did turn to the political world, he told me a story that in, a, in an unintended way, I think, was kind of revealing of his view of uh, the political process and, and the ways of politics at that time. When he was elected in 2003, some of you may remember, that was the time of the, of the last big series of Southern California wildfires before the ones we had last fall. While Gray Davis was still governor, Schwarzenegger was the governor-elect when those fires broke out, and uh, the two of them had actually gone together down to East San Diego County to be on the fire lines and shake hands with firefighters and try to console uh, the victims. And as it turned out, my father and father-in-law had both been evacuated from their homes in uh, East San Diego County. So we were talking about that, and uh, Schwarzenegger said, you know, I was standing there on the fire lines with Gray Davis, and a man came up to him, and pointed him at him in the chest and said, Gray Davis, you are the worst governor in the history of California. And Schwarzenegger turned to me and said, you know, I, I sort of turned away because I didn't want Gray to know that I had heard what this guy had said. I didn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, that's funny because Schwarzenegger had just been on the campaign trail for four months saying exactly that same thing. <laughs> to anyone who would listen in person, on the radio, on television, on national television, to millions of people. And yet, when he heard a stranger say it to Davis, to his face, he kind of cringed and uh, didn't really make that connection between what he was doing in the political world and, and what uh, the public would see in that kind of a situation. And so Schwarzenegger really does not view the world the same way that most traditional politicians do. He is, at least now, definitely a politician. There's no doubt about that. But he still sees himself as a problem solver. He wants to do big things. Sometimes he tries, I think, to do too big of things, and uh, that's why he has often come up short. He definitely considers himself a Republican, but he has surrounded himself not only by Republicans, but also Democrats and independents. And of course, among the Democrats, includes his wife, Maria Shriver. And so he doesn't see anything particularly strange about that. As we said, this is the fourth governor I've covered, and while other governors have maybe once in a while a a member of the opposite party has stumbled into their inner circle some way by sort of half by accident, Schwarzenegger does this as a matter of course. He described it to me once as sort of how he would go about writing a movie script. He said he wouldn't want, you know, all writers who... uh, focused on drama or all writers who focused on action or romance. He would want this collection of people in a room bouncing ideas off each other so they could get the best out of everybody. And that's the way he likes to make decisions uh, in government with this robust give and take from advisors with completely different ideological points of view. But his tendency to particularly entrust things to Democrats certainly became well-known and remarked upon after the 2005 special election debacle when he hired a woman named Susan Kennedy to be his chief of staff, his top aide. Susan Kennedy had been a very high aide to former Governor Davis. Uh, She'd also worked for Senator Feinstein for the California Democratic Party. She's a prominent gay activist. In fact, she told me once that uh, it was more difficult for her as a Democrat to come out for Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2005 than it had been for her to come out as a lesbian many years earlier. (laughs) But uh, it was funny the way the Republicans reacted when Schwarzenegger hired Kennedy. Um, The Republican elected officials and activists sort of threw up their arms and assumed that Kennedy was going to uh, pull Schwarzenegger far to the left when, in fact, in many ways, Kennedy is, is, at least on economic issues, is as conservative, if not more conservative, than, than Schwarzenegger. And what, what I found remarkable about that pairing was that, you know, as a Republican, Schwarzenegger is in the minority in California, and he's clearly in the minority in the capital. What he has to do day in and day out is figure out a way to get more Democrats on his side. So not only could he get reelected, 
but he could get something done in the legislature. And here he goes and gets one of the most prominent Democrats in California to join his side, to take his side and declare that not only had she voted for all those measures that he put on the ballot and which had been soundly rejected by a majority of Californians, but she intended to vote for him for re-election in 2006. Sort of, you know, one down, several million to go. But the, the Republicans uh, in the Capitol thought this was an outrage, which, again, goes to show what kind of logic they sometimes use. But while that brought to prominence uh, Schwarzenegger's tendency to pull from all sides of the uh, political spectrum, the roots of that tendency actually go quite far back into his young adulthood. And, and I find that transformation that took place between the time he came to America as a young man, uh, not yet 21 years old, and the time he ran for governor to be a fascinating transformation in his sort of view of the world. In the uh, political press, we've written a lot about his swings back and forth on the political spectrum while he's been governor. But that swing that happened between 1968 and, say, 1998, I think was even more significant. When, when he came here, to the extent that he was thinking about economics and politics while he was pumping iron down the road in, in Venice and Santa Monica, he really was a, an extreme individualist. Maybe not surprising given the kind of activities he was involved in, but he had essentially fled Austria, which is a typical sort of European social democratic uh, system, and really had come to America in pursuit of the American dream. He believed that if he worked hard, if he applied himself, he could do anything. Uh, He could become rich, he could have a beautiful family, he could do anything he wanted. And essentially, that's what happened to him. But along the way, rather than allowing his own experiences, which had essentially confirmed his youthful take on the world, just dominate the rest of of his life, he actually uh, changed the way he viewed the world. You're listening to Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing... From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Do you have an old car, truck, or boat taking up space in your garage? Give it to KPCC. Donating your used vehicle goes a long way toward paying for the news and information you count on each day. It takes just a couple of minutes to schedule a pickup, and we'll send you a receipt for your income taxes. Find out more online at kpcc.org or call 877-KPCC-CAR. Thanks. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by Pita Pita Lebanese and Mediterranean Restaurant, located on Colorado Boulevard and open seven days a week. Catering and party planning available, 626-356-0106. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series. 
LA's free eclectic and roving cultural forum. We now return to Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. Most of that change I attribute to his exposure to the Shriver family, not just Maria, but her parents, uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, JFK's sister, and Sergeant Shriver. The two of them have dedicated their entire lives to public service. Being with them, uh, being around them for 20 or 30 years really is what transformed the way Schwarzenegger viewed the world. When he came to the United States, he really had the view that the safety net, that what we think of as the safety net, was really actually kind of destructive to people, that uh, he personally was so driven to succeed and so had so much belief in the power of will that uh, he believed that everybody was sort of wired the way he was and that if you just focused on a goal and drove yourself toward it, you could do it. Harris uh, Woford, who was a former uh, U.S. senator from Pennsylvania, told me a story about the first time Schwarzenegger actually was at the Shriver uh, compound in uh, Massachusetts. It was when he was 30. He had come up, uh, been invited by Maria and her siblings to come up for the weekend after they met him at a celebrity tennis tournament in uh, New York. And Woford happened to be there. He's a longtime friend of the Shriver family and was tasked with sort of entertaining Schwarzenegger, who was then just sort of finishing his bodybuilding career and and starting to try to break into acting. So Wolford spent uh, about an hour with Schwarzenegger on the beach, and he said that uh, Schwarzenegger told him his life story about growing up as kind of a scrawny kid in Austria and willing himself to be the best bodybuilder in the world. And then he said he was going to will himself to be the most famous actor in the world. He was 30 at the time. And he turned to uh, Wolford, who was 50 and was then president of a private university in, in Philadelphia, had worked in the White House and in the U.S. Senate, and essentially said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> and Wolford took it with the spirit with which it was in, intended and said, well, you know, I've always dreamed of being a U.S. senator. And Schwarzenegger looked at him and said, if you will it, it will happen. And 14 years later, it did. But the story illustrates how at age 30, Schwarzenegger really believed that anybody could do anything they wanted if they just worked at it hard enough. But through his exposure to the developmentally disabled, through the Special Olympics and and Eunice Shriver, through his exposure to to world poverty, through uh, Sergeant Shriver's contacts, he had been the first director of the Peace Corps, Schwarzenegger really began to see a different side of the world. Uh, Eventually, he formed his own foundation, started right here in L.A. with the Inner City Games, where he merged with some other people that were already working on after-school programs, and then developed that as a national idea. And through that and his work in in physical fitness, began to tour inner-city schools all over the country. And that's where he began to see that there were kids in those schools, many kids, who uh, essentially had no families at home, had no parents watching after them, making sure they did their homework, making sure they stayed out of trouble. Schwarzenegger didn't grow up in a privileged background, but he was privileged to have two parents who were very focused on his development and well-being and made sure that he did what he needed to do to, to get the background to succeed. And when he saw and began to see that so many kids did not have that, he really began to change the way he viewed the world and, and the world of politics and government and the need for government to, at a very minimum, take steps to ensure uh, equal opportunity for all. He once said, uh, before he ever started running for governor, he said uh, he used to think that everybody could pull themselves up by their bootstraps the way he did, but then he realized that not everybody had boots. And I think that's a good summation of kind of the transformation of his view of the world. And so this tendency of his to kind of be all over the map ideologically is not something that started in 2003 when he ran for governor or 2005 when he lost all his measures in the special election. It's really something that goes much deeper than that, and it's part of his political DNA. And so he has this collection of views that really don't fit in either of our major political parties. Uh, Some of you might remember when he first came into the formal political world, when he announced he was running for governor in 2003 on uh, The uh, Tonight Show with Jay Leno, 
all the drama and uh, celebrity gawking that was associated with that. Afterwards, after the taping, he came out in front of the studios and he had a press conference. Naturally, most of the questions were focused on Hollywood and celebrity and, and Terminator. But someone actually asked a question about, you know, what do you want to do if you become governor? And his answer did not get reported widely. But if you go back and look at the transcript, it's quite telling because it kind of tipped off the nature of his sort of political character and also the tension that has been uh, evident throughout his time as governor. He said, well, first I want to do everything possible to get the economy moving again, strengthen business in California, create more jobs. And I want to do that so that all this business and economic activity creates more tax revenue for the state so that we can spend it on all these programs. And he actually listed uh, generally a number of programs that can be broadly described as cradle to grave, I mean, things for infants, children, poor adults, seniors. And so in one sentence, he was melding kind of the philosophies of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the idea of boosting business and strengthening the economy, which is what Republicans tend to focus on, and the idea of strengthening government programs, which is what Democrats tend to focus on. Republicans generally don't talk about strengthening the economy in order to generate more tax revenue. If any additional tax revenue is generated, they generally want to then cut tax rates. Democrats generally don't talk too much about boosting the economy in order to, to generate tax revenue. They're, they're more likely just to want to raise tax rates. And so he really has this kind of fusion view of the world that crosses those party lines. He does certainly share a view of economics that is common among Republicans and probably is even could be described as even more conservative than the typical Republican office holder today. I mean, he is in his core, a capitalist. I mean, he really believes in the private economy, in markets, in globalization, in growth. He celebrates it. He loves it. He revels in it like no governor we've had in a generation, if ever before. He's also quite conservative on criminal justice issues and on education, where he believes in uh, high standards and accountability, consistent and choice charter schools, consistent more with with a Republican view of the world than with at least the organized Democrats in Sacramento. He agrees with the Democrats on, on abortion rights and gay rights, on stem cell research, on the need for a safety net, although they certainly have many disagreements uh, on the details of that. And he has been able to meld the two sides on some issues, including the environment and health care, all of which makes him a pretty good fit for California. California is a mainstream state. It is not nearly as liberal as its reputation. If you look at the results on ballot measures in California, you find that when California voters statewide vote on issues, they're really all over the map. Uh, Sometimes they veer to the right, sometimes they veer to the left. A lot of times uh, they're in the middle. And California has also been the site of a real uh, rapid escalation in the number of independent Voters. There are a lot of independent-minded voters in the Republican Party, in the Democratic Party, but the number of voters who are declining to register in either party is really starting to grow. The history of that certainly goes far back. I mean, California is a natural place to see the rise of the independent voter because it's always been a place for the independent spirit. I think if you go all the way back to, to the gold rush, you find that California is a place that has... Uh, been hospitable and has relished the independent spirit and and independent thinking. It's not a place that has ever really valued big institutions, religion, uh, labor unions, uh, government. None of those things have really been popular in California, and the parties have historically been rather weak, at least by national standards. Uh, For a time in California, you even had what was called cross-filing, where politicians could run in either party, primary or both, and be nominated by both parties at the same time, as uh, Earl Warren was in the mid-1900s. It was really almost a nonpartisan state for a while. And we're starting, I think, to see a resurgence of that attitude. Between the time of the recall and the time that Schwarzenegger was re-elected, there were 250,000 new voters added to the California rolls. 
But at, during that time, the Republicans actually lost 86,000 voters. The Democrats lost 68,000 voters. And the number of voters who declined to register in either party grew by 400,000. So you can see there's just been a sea change going on. And if it continues for another generation, you're actually going to see the people who are not a member of either party become a plurality in California, uh, potentially uh, more uh, than the Democrats or the Republicans have. Now, it's kind of hard to define who these people are. Some of them are disaffected Democrats who, rather than join the Greens, have just gone declined to state. They're not moderate at all. Some of them are libertarian-leaning Republicans who have gone off sort of the right side of, of the spectrum from the Republican Party. But a lot of them are in this in-between area, and they're sort of Schwarzenegger independents. They probably sort of more fiscally conservative than the Democrats, more socially liberal than the Republicans. Uh, they find themselves with just a mix of views on the various issues that don't fit neatly into the boxes that our political system has created for us all. Uh, if you look at the results on ballot measures in California, uh, over the past uh, 10 or so years, there have been about uh, 42 ballot measures where there was exit polling done by the news media on Election Day. And I went back and looked at the results and how they lined up with the views of independents, Republicans, and Democrats. And on those 42 initiatives, independents were on the winning side uh, 37 times out of 42, which was more than the members of either of the uh, major political parties. Democrats were on the winning side 32 times, and Republicans uh, 25 times. And so what you'd see was the independents on one issue would side with the Democrats and overwhelm the Republicans, and then on other issues they would side with the Republicans and overwhelm uh, the Democrats. But the independents, taken as a group, were uh, most often on the winning side of those issues. And I think that, again, shows the sort of centrist tendency of California voters. But uh, none of this, unfortunately, in my view, uh, is reflected in our legislature, which as the state has become more independent-minded and in some ways more centrist, the legislature has become more polarized and more partisan. What's happening, I think, is these independents leave the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, they're sort of boiling the parties down to their essence, and the only ones left in the parties are the true believers, the loyalists who don't want compromise, don't want pragmatism. They want it their way or no way at all. And since the parties control the political discussion, what we're hearing is this much more bitter and angry back and forth between the partisans. Uh, and so while the uh, state is becoming more independent-minded, I think the political language and the political conversation is going in the opposite direction. And you've really got a, a paradox uh, created there. Part of that is just the nature of our political system being dominated by two parties. If, for instance, uh, 40% of Republicans in a particular district might be okay with raising taxes and they go and elect a member of the legislature, well, 60% of the Republicans are going to be against raising taxes and most likely that Republican legislator who comes out of that district is going to be against raising taxes. So the 40% who had the opposing view, their view doesn't get reflected generally by that legislator or any of the other legislators from that party. And so, indeed, while the latest polls are showing that somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of Republicans statewide say, oh, we'd be okay with raising taxes to fix this budget problem, none of the Republicans in the legislature reflect that point of view. Accentuating that is what's known as gerrymandering, the way the political district lines are drawn and currently the lines that we have, which are drawn by the legislature, essentially allowing them to pick their voters rather than having voters pick their legislators, they were deliberately designed to pack lots of Democrats into districts that would be safe for Democrats and lots of Republicans into districts that would be safe for Republicans. And so almost everybody in the legislature has never had to run in an election where they had to appeal at all to members of the opposite party or to independent voters. And so they're really concentrated in the uh, loyal camps of their own parties. And so in that environment, Schwarzenegger really has been kind of on his own, forced to make uh, shifting alliances, sometimes with Republicans where they have common ground, 
other times with Democrats, sometimes trying to bring everybody together, and his record has been mixed at best. Of course, on the budget, I think he's been pretty much a failure. He uh, cut taxes by an executive order, but was not able to cut spending. He was forced, essentially, to defer and push off fixing the budget, went to the ballot in 2004 with a measure that really was not effective, tried to go again in 2005 and was shot down. Now he's talking about trying to do it one more time, hopefully with a consensus, but he's just never been able to get on top of that problem. On health care, he had a proposal that was really centrist and had the support of upwards of 60% of California voters when they were polled on it, but he got shot down in a, in a partisan crossfire. Republicans were opposed to taxes and mandates. Democrats preferred a government-run plan, and so in the end, not enough of either voted for it. On other issues, he has been able to bring both sides together. He brokered a deal to protect local government from uh, state raids on their taxes, He put together a big agreement on infrastructure in 2006, persuaded the people of California to vote for $37 billion in bonds for roads and transit and schools and housing and flood control to meet the growth in the state and to make up for lost time and a lack of investment. He brought both sides together on the tough issue of prisons and criminal justice. Republicans only wanted to build new Prison beds, Democrats only wanted to focus on rehabilitation, but he got them together to do a little bit of both. You're listening to Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. This Thursday, May 8th, Sokolo presents An Evening with Russ Stanton, moderated by NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick. As the new editor-in-chief for the Los Angeles Times, Stanton visits Sokolo to discuss his vision for the newspaper, the coverage he expects it to provide for Angelinos, and the financial and journalistic challenges that he and the paper are now confronting as he settles into his new role. And on Wednesday, May 14th, Sokolo presents A House of Horrors. Why is homeownership so elusive for so many Angelinos? Rick Wartsman, director of the Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University, examines the housing affordability crisis with three distinguished panelists. Sean Spear, director of major projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department. John Caraval, housing market analyst with DataQuick Information Systems. And Ehud Mushli, vice president of UNIDEV, a workforce housing developer. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information and to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. It's easy to think public radio is free, but of course you know it's not. Reporters cost money. NPR News costs money. And KPCC has operating expenses like any organization or business. We don't cover these costs with government funding or commercials. We rely on listeners like you as the most reliable way to pay for the news you hear every day. Do your part and become a contributing member today at kpcc.org. And thanks. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. Next time on Day to Day. A woman in Massachusetts thought she had sex with her boyfriend. Later, she learned it was actually his brother. When someone does not consent, it should be raped. The state is considering a bill to make sex by deception illegal. But can that go too far? People fib a little to get some nookie. That's not criminal. That's human. An attempt to close a legal loophole. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Larry McMurtry has nostalgic feelings about L.A. When the author of Lonesome Dove came here 45 years ago, he haunted the city's used bookshops. But now the man who's won an Oscar and a Pulitzer Prize isn't hopeful about the future of the book. I'm Pat Morrison, and hard to believe, but it's almost Election Day again. The big fight in the June primary is about two propositions over eminent domain and rent control. It revs up here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. 
We now return to Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. On other issues, he has worked with the Democrats in the legislature when he had almost no Republican support in the legislature, but he did have Republican support among the voters. And so on things like AB 32, the global warming bill, which I think one Republican in the legislature voted for, 65% of Republican voters said that they supported having the state take a leadership role on that issue. And similarly, on uh, getting prescription drug discounts for the working poor, raising the minimum wage, he bargained with the Democrats and stood, as the title of my book suggests, as a party of one when no Republicans in the legislature would work with him, but he used his ability to threaten a veto of Democratic bills to win concessions from the Democrats that satisfied him enough to go with some of their policy proposals. But I think his biggest failure, oddly enough, has been that he's been too conventional. When he was elected, there were a lot of fears that he would be another Jesse Ventura, the former wrestler governor of of Minnesota, who was kind of a flake and never really got much done and retired after one term. But Schwarzenegger, if anything, has fit in too well in in the capital culture. Uh, He had the potential to be very different and to really bring about dramatic change in California, but he really hasn't done that. As I said, on the budget, he's failed. On education, he's dabbled a little bit, but really uh, declined to do anything uh, radical. Uh, I think he could have had the opportunity and still has the opportunity to do a major realignment of the way we regulate education in California and essentially bring it down to the local level, decentralize it, empower teachers and principals at a local school level, and have the districts and the counties and the state be more about accountability than micromanagement, but he hasn't done that. With local government, he did protect them from raids on their budgets, but he missed an opportunity to reshape the way uh, we govern land use decisions and to encourage smart growth and to end what's called the fiscalization of growth, where cities compete with each other for big box retail stores because of the, the revenue that they're dependent on. And then if you think uh, back to his his famous vow to blow up the boxes in the uh, state bureaucracy, that ended up being uh, uh, an attempt to enact something like 200 different changes in the state bureaucracy, which uh, the legislature took one look at and said, no way, we're not going there. And the whole thing fell uh, like a thud. If he had done something more creative, rather than blowing up the boxes, thought outside the box... Uh, he might very well have been successful and and set a model for uh, future reshaping of the way we do uh, government business in California. I would suggest that if he had taken one program, say perhaps the Department of Motor Vehicles, and made it a case study of how you can uh, turn a government bureaucracy into a consumer-oriented office, have it open nights and weekends, have uh, driver's licenses while you wait, uh, all kinds of things that people associate the DMV, even though it's improved in, in the past few years, it's still associated with kind of the old, uh, slow-moving government bureaucracy. And here he could have taken the thing that almost everybody in the state has dealt with and everybody's familiar with and made it an example of how you could use his principles to improve service to people. And then, assuming he could have done that successfully, he could have built on that and then moved on to bigger and bigger things. Instead, he tried to do kind of everything at once and ended up doing nothing. And so I think that with two and a half years left, he still uh, has hopes of accomplishing these bigger things. He's still talking about a a big deal on the uh, water supply. He's going to come back to health care again. There will be other issues, education. So I think you can look for him to continue to reach high. What will be interesting to see is whether he also reaches sort of more creatively instead of just kind of doing the same old thing in Sacramento, only bigger. But while he does that, I still think that he is tapping into something that is very powerful that is going on in our political system, and that is uh, this rise of the independent voter. Californians have admired him through his ups and downs on the policy issues, They've admired his independence, and I think that's a reflection of this change that we're seeing in our political system, not only in California, but across the country. I think as 
more and more people come of age in the information age where people are taking control of their lives in small and big ways from programming their television to downloading movies and music off the Internet, doing their banking and real estate transactions online, managing their own retirement accounts, and even going to school online. You're seeing people using the Internet and information devices to just take much more control over the daily decisions in their lives. And I think that uh, you've seen this in my own industry. In the newspaper business, we used to be the gatekeepers of information. If, if we didn't tell you something happened, it essentially didn't happen. There was no other way to find out about it. Now people get their news on the Internet. And, yes, a lot of people are reading newspapers on the Internet, but there's also uh, a thousand other sources of information, some of it direct from the political players, some of it from other observers, and the whole thing has been democratized. The same thing is happening to our political parties, I think people more and more are saying, hey, I don't need to get all my information about politics from a political party. I don't need to vote for who a party tells me to vote for, who a party blesses. I can get the information on my own, through my friends, through my political associates, and I can make my own decisions. And so I think that as that trend continues, and it is going to continue, eventually we're going to see independent voters outnumbering Democrats and Republicans, and then we're going to see a fundamental shift in the way our government and politics are run, uh, the way the district lines are drawn, the way primaries are handled. We may even see the nonpartisan system we have in local government extended to state government. And so while we will never again, I predict, have a governor who is a former bodybuilder and action movie star, I do think that Schwarzenegger is on the cutting edge of a new kind of politics that will see many politicians follow in his independent-minded footsteps. Thank you very much, and I look forward to taking your questions. Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. Todd Kerner, I very much enjoyed your talk today. Thank you. Two questions tied together. What do you think was Schwarzenegger's biggest surprise or most unprepared for when he came into office as governor? And in the lexicon of Hollywood, how would you describe his character arc over the course of these last four or five years? I would say his biggest surprise was his inability to move the legislature with the power of his celebrity. I think he really thought that he could sweep into the Capitol, not only as a celebrity, but as the product of this historic recall election, and sweep the Democrats off their feet and get them to do all kinds of policy changes that he thought were, were good for the state. So I think that was his biggest surprise. I think his second biggest surprise was related to that would probably be, but more personal to him would be how difficult it is to cut government spending very much like Ronald Reagan, who, when he was first elected governor, thought that he was going to cut waste, fraud, and abuse until I think someone finally told him, Governor, there is no Department of Waste, Fraud, and Abuse. You've actually got to cut spending on programs. And and this governor, I think, um, underwent a similar uh, realization that, in fact, uh, even Republican voters have kids in the schools and uh, family who are mentally ill and others that they care for who need and depend on public services. And when you go to cut those, it's not always easy. His character arc, that's a much tougher question. You know, I think they are related. I I think his character arc has gone from someone who thought that, that this was easy, that the idiots in Sacramento just didn't know what they were doing, uh, and they just needed someone who could come in and, and be gutsy and take decisive action. That was the way he viewed the political world when he started, those big spenders in Sacramento. And I think that over time, he's come to a realization that it is much more difficult than he ever imagined, not only dealing with the kind of obstacles that I'm talking about and the partisan polarization in the capital, but just dealing with the incredible dynamic nature of the state and all the competing needs and desires and uh, motivations. And I, I don't think he had any appreciation for how complicated state government can be and how difficult it can be to be on the, uh, the top of it. And now I think he's got a much better sense of that. 
name is Bill Bicker. You raised an issue about the importance of the independence and growth. And it seems to me that the biggest failure in that is reapportionment. And the governor led the parade. I mean, he backed off every opportunity to make a change. Reapportionment? Yes. Actually, I think that on reapportionment, it's been one of the rare things that he's stuck to his guns on. I mean, he proposed it in the campaign. He took it to the voters. It was defeated. He kept pressing it again. Uh, the only time he backed off was when he endorsed the term limits measure, despite right. the legislature's failure to do redistricting. But by that point, it was clear they weren't going to do it in, in that round. Now he's endorsed a, an initiative that was drafted by the Common Cause Reform Group, and they're, they're back out collecting signatures again for an initiative that will probably be on the, the November ballot. But I haven't seen him really use his celebrity, his fiscal power, or his other thing to just say this is the key which I think it is from everything you've been saying. Well, I, I agree that if he could do that, it would be a huge thing for his legacy. And, uh, but it's clear that the powers that be don't want to budge on it. So he's kind of up against a wall there. Bob Stern. Hello, Bob. Um, we've had three governors who were very qualified to be governor, George Dukemajan, Pete Wilson, Gray Davis. We've had three celebrity governors, Reagan, Jerry Brown, Schwarzenegger. And yet the question is, is California governable? With these very qualified people, the question really is, what does it take to become uh, a governable state? I do think California is governable. I'm the, uh, the glass-half-full person on, on that issue. But I also think that we tend to put too much emphasis on the governing, particularly from the state level. If you step back and you look at California as a place throughout all those terms that you've mentioned, more than almost a generation or more, California government, state government, has been seen as fairly dysfunctional. But the state itself has actually done pretty well. I mean, if you go back and look at over a generation what has happened in the state with the number of immigrants that we have absorbed into our economy uh, in the last 10 years, uh, the state's grown by probably 5 million people, while uh, we've actually reduced the number of people in poverty by, I think, about 4 million, which is pretty amazing. The uh, Per capita income has grown dramatically over the past 10 years. Uh, with all the problems in the schools, test scores are actually higher now than they were 10 years ago. Teenage pregnancies and births are down. So there's any number of indicators you can look at. We have huge problems in this state, but if you step back and look at the sweep of time, I think that despite this dysfunctional animal in Sacramento, the people of California, the 38 million now people of California, actually do quite well in spite of their dysfunctional government. And uh, maybe at some point we'll realize that we don't need them so much and we can get it done ourselves. I think local government in California is actually you know, pretty effective most of the time. You know, hopefully at some point Sacramento will get its act together. I hope it doesn't get its act so well together that it screws up all the progress that we all have been making uh, on our own. But I don't know the, the true, you know, quick soundbite answer to how to make it more governable. I do think reducing the partisan polarization would help, and at least it's worth a try. I mean, I think that's the strength of local government is even though there's a partisan background to elections and politics on the local level. It's not the first instinct of everybody, and people do work together more. There's more pragmatism. There's more problem-solving. If we had that at the state level, I think it would give us at least a start on resolving some of these problems. Gene Pasco, everybody wants to know what Arnold's going to do next, so I'm curious about what you think about what he might do next, and how do you think his celebrity, how do you think he's going to be able to use his celebrity in the next office, how has his impact as governor, how does that translate into what he tries for next should he go for another public office? Yeah, you're assuming that there's going to be another public office. I'm not. There was a lot of speculation for a time that he would run for the U.S. Senate. I never really bought into that because I don't think he would be comfortable being one of 100 in the Senate. He likes being in the executive office. He likes being the decision-maker and the center of attention. And uh, he's already, as you mentioned, a mega celebrity, so he doesn't need that part of being uh, a senator, if you consider your senators celebrities. So I don't think he is going to run for another public office. Uh, I think he's going to 
retire from the governor's office and sort of follow the Bill Clinton, Al Gore model, form a, a different foundation than the one he's already had, travel around the country, if not the world, pursuing issues like uh, global warming, maybe health care, other things that he's done, maybe even political reform, talking about redistricting, and just kind of be an independent elder statesman of politics and government and celebrity and work on problems as they come up and, and interest him. All right. Well, thank you very much. Let's talk some more. You've been listening to Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stensholm. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, I'm Dana Joya, the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. Radio is the ideal medium for ideas. Radio provides a kind of conversation that we have nowhere else in society. And Zokovo Radio is one of the places that you should listen to. 